Welcome everyone. We have a very special announcement. It is almost February. The 2020 Olympic Marathon, U.S. Olympic Marathon trials will be here before you know it on February 29th in Atlanta. And we at Let's Run love the Olympic trials because we were born as well then prepared for the 2000 U.S. Olympic trials in Flagstaff. And as a result, Hoka is excited as well about the trials and they will be sponsoring a month-long exploration of the trials and getting everyone pumped and excited about them. And what better way to start off that month by interviewing Hoka One One, NEZ Elite Coach Ben Rosario. He is in Flagstaff, the birthplace of Let'sRun.com. And Ben, it's a great honor. We're not sure. We think you may be the first two-time guest of the podcast. You were back on in, on May 22nd, according to the archives. So welcome back. We're excited to have you on. Uh, when we're recording this on Monday, we're only 33 days out. So if you guys aren't familiar with the NEZ Elite team, there's 12 members of the team, but there will be six members of them in Atlanta. Ben is coaching the, I think it's, I've got the stats here, the third and 10th fastest men in Scott Fobble at 209.09, Scott Smith at 211. And also there's a third member, Sid Vaughn, who will be making his marathon debut in Atlanta. And on the women's side, you have the fifth, 11th, and 12th fastest qualifiers in the cycle. And Kaylin Taylor, 224.28, Alephine Tuamak, 226.50, and Stephanie Bruce, 227.47. In addition to those six, there's six other members of the team that don't be at the trials. But Ben, how do you feel? 33 days out. I feel great. Uh, everybody's healthy, so that's number one. Obviously, you can't make the team if you're not on the line, and we're just trying to take it one workout at a time. Actually, I said there was somewhat of a misleading question. How are you personally feeling, though, Ben? Because I was looking up some research. Something big happened this month, just a few days ago, looking backwards. The big four zero. That's true. I turned 40. Uh, I feel good. I'm probably healthier this year than I was a year ago. I don't know if it's the 40 thing, but I did try to make a concerted effort to um, to be a little bit healthier this month, both for the 40 thing, but also for the athletes. I did want to be, you know, I did want to have as much energy as I could heading into the trials. So I tried to cut out beer. I cheated a couple times, but uh, I did better than I have uh, in the past. And uh, I have been running a little bit more than I have in the past and playing basketball. So I'm trying to be healthy. Great. It sneaks up on us pretty quickly, doesn't it? It does. It does. So um, let, let me jump in real quick, Ben. Back in the, I think it was on the podcast in May, you said you'd run a marathon. It's kind of like self-torture. If let's run.com's Jonathan Galt, didn't think that Kellen Taylor had a chance to make the Olympic marathon team. I've got good news for you. Jonathan Galt confirmed today on our weekly call that he thinks Kellen has a good shot of making the team. So you don't have to run a marathon at 40. You can just keep living healthy on, on your own. That gives you an indication of how confident I am in Kellen because I do not want to run a marathon. So I, I guess that's a good way to start it. Weldon brought up the women first, so let's start with the women. You've got three of the top 12, I guess, seeds based on the, you know their qualifying time. You say they're healthy. They, they both, all three of them recently ran a half marathon, I guess, what, earlier this month, right around the time of your birthday. Alphine Tulemek ran 69-49 for the half in Houston, and Steph Bruce and Kelly Kevin Taylor crossed the line together at Rock and Roll Arizona in 69-13. But I guess that course was a little bit short. It's been estimated by Race Results Weekly to be equal to a 70-14 half marathon. I'm not sure if you agree with that conversion or not, but then what did you think of that performance? Was that what you were looking for? Did you tell him to run a certain pace? Yeah, Alephine had the green light to just go and race in Houston and just um, kind of find that top American pack mostly, and that's what happened. And she ran with Molly Huddle and uh, Katie Katie German and a number of others. Sarah kind of pulled away. Sarah Hall kind of pulled away from that pack. But, uh, yeah, Elephine did fine. Uh, 109.49 tied her PR on an eligible course. I think she had run 109.16 on a downhill course uh, a few years back. But, yes, yeah, she's in great shape. And then Steph and Kellen were, were supposed to run conservative for nine miles and then rip the last four, which they did. That, that mess up on the course was between nine and ten. But then the 10-mile mark was correct. So from 10 to the finish, they ran 15.35 for their last 5K. So they were, they were crushing coming home. So, yeah, all, all three of the ladies are very, very fit. I was listening back to the May, May 22nd podcast when you were on. You said you were kind of excited about this because it would be the first time that all three women were on the same marathon training cycle. So 
how has that how has that been? I mean, you, you said that back then that they they were all a little bit different. That um, I think that uh, Stephanie Bruce is sort of the best at sort of running relaxed and you know chilling a little bit in practice. The other two sort of like to really push things. Have the three of them been doing like identical training, the same workouts? Tell us how, how that's been as a coach, and is it hard to go sort of get them all on the same page? Yeah, we've done the same workouts. Um, we are fortunate in the sense that uh, Ben Bruce, our assistant coach, is uh, willing to pace them quite often. So they've been helped by him in many workouts where he's setting the rhythm and all they have to do is sit behind him. Uh, so that's been that's been good, I think. And over the course of the last few weeks, I think they've gotten to really trust one another. And uh, look, they all know that they're good. I mean, their PRs in every distance are so similar. I mean, I think 5K, it's like 15, 17, 15, 18, 15, 19. Um, so they're, they're, they're super close together. All They've all run, you know, 109 or 110 low for the half. And they've all run between 224 and 227 in the marathon. So they know they're good and they don't have any bitterness or jealousy toward one another. And yeah, I think... I think it's it's probably gone better than I had expected. There's been little times when, you know, Alfie maybe pushed at the end when maybe she wasn't supposed to or or whatever, but uh but I think it's all been good and coming down the stretch I think it'll be uh, more of the same. So one of the things that our staff writer Jonathan Galt wanted us to ask you was you've got three elite women and three elite men training for the same goal. Now there are three spots at the Olympic trials for both genders. But the odds, Ben, of <laughs> you guys sweeping all six spots are pretty small. Yeah. So is that hard in the sense of like, you know, they're trying to help each other in practice, but ultimately in the race, there may only be, you know, one spot that they could take. One of them might place third, one of them might place fourth or fifth. How does, how do they approach that psychologically? I mean, I guess, you know, on a college team or a high school team, there can only be one winner too, but you're all sort of still scoring and helping the team. This is a little bit different in the sense of kind of a zero sum game and the fact that there's only three spots. It's hard to answer in the sense that we haven't talked about the race strategy yet because we're trying to take it one workout at a time. But I think philosophically, we, we definitely realize what you're saying, but I think there's a, there's a belief and an understanding in, in, amongst the group that one way or another will make it, but it, you know, we don't know who it's going to be. I think, though, if you balance the pros and cons, you'd rather have the situation we where that, that we're in. Particularly if you think about it on race day. I mean, we'll. Ha- I mean, they're they're all going to be in the lead pack. You know, all three of them on the women's side, and so I think that's a big advantage because nobody else has that. And um, you know, they'll know each other's strengths and weaknesses, sure. But I think that's going to give them confidence because if if let's say Alephine makes a big move at 22 miles, I think Kellen and Steph will know that they can go with it. Whereas if it's somebody else, there's a little bit of uncertainty. But with Alephine or, or let's say Kellen makes the move, you know, Steph and Alephine would know that they can go because they've been finishing every single workout together. So there's a fearlessness that comes with the knowledge that, that they're all super fit. And, um, you know, they've always been good about that. I mean, when, when Steph won the US 10K title in 2018, she passed Alphine with a K to go. And uh, instead of Alphine being bitter about it, she just kind of said, you go girl, you know, when stuff passed her. So they're very, they're very, uh, they're very tight. Those three, you know, uh, there was a workout a couple of weeks back, 15 by a mile. It was really hard and really draining. And, and um, Kellen had just gone through something in her personal life that was really, really tough. And uh, on the cool down, they kind of all broke down together and kind of, hugged and cried together about, about something that was very personal. And, uh, you know, that, that's how tight they are. So I, I think, uh, I think any cons about them training together are far outweighed by the pros. How important is it, is it to you, the team dynamic in the sense of, you know, on the last podcast, you said you guys spend a lot of time on finding the culture on finding people that want to show up at practice. But one of the things that I was actually reading and as part of this Hoka exploration, we've sent out a bunch of Q&A to basically any Hoka qualifier, not just your group, but the Hoka Aggies and other people like that and asking them basic questions. But actually, it was Scott Fobble who had one of the interesting questions about, you know, how he got into running. And he was talking about the bond in his college team at Portland, you know, and he said there's something about logging 100 mile weeks in the Portland rain that bonds you with the people you're around. I think that that just the shared commitment of running 100, 110, 120 miles a week, it doesn't matter whether you're in Portland and Flagstaff, it's going to be, I mean, they're probably going to be 
lifelong bond here, but do you really think that there's sort of a synergy in the team dynamic? I mean, it seems like that's something that you've really focused on. Yeah, we focus on it. It's a constant, it's, it's fluid, you know, culture is fluid. You can, you can outline it at the beginning of the year, but if you don't work on it's like a marriage. If you don't work on your marriage, your marriage is going to fall apart. And that's harsh to say, but it's true. You know, it's the same thing with a culture on a team. You have to be working at it. Uh, we just met today with the trials crew and had a little meeting and just um, just kind of um, recapped uh, where we've been so far and, and a little bit of a look into where we're going here over the next five weeks. And we kind of highlighted some of the athletes that have done a great job here at these recent workouts and why. And it's not always about the performance. You know, it's not always about the result of the workout on paper. Sometimes it's about the uh, the way they were leaders, you know, uh, for example, Scott Smith and Scott Fogel both had a flu bug and couldn't run Rock and Roll Arizona like they were supposed to. And uh, I kind of called them out as a positive example of how to deal with adversity because most people or a lot of people would have flipped out uh, six weeks out from the trial getting the f- trials getting the flu, but they were totally professional about it. They understood the context. They understood they're very fit and they just need to get through this thing and they need to just get healthy and they don't need to worry about the first workout back being a home run. They just need to just, just need to kind of get through this little stretch here and then they'll be fine. And, and uh, those are the kind of things that we learn from one another. And uh, we like to highlight those things because that's our culture. Our culture is one of confidence and professionalism. Wow, Ben, I wish you'd been coaching Weldon in college. He he hurt his back about, 10 days before the conference meet his senior in cross country and decided to, that he could not afford to miss a few days. So he got on the bike, which he had never ridden before and did like two and a half hour workouts and then screwed up all his muscles. And yep. Yep. Did, did pretty poorly. So back when I was coaching, that's why Weldon's letting me, Weldon led the podcast in May. He's letting me lead this one since I am the former paid coach at Cornell university. <laughs> back, back when I was coaching, I, I used to tell the guys, you know, these athletes are so driven and so committed to, to dedicate their lives to running, you know, the easy thing is to run through an illness or, or, or to, you know, I've got to hit a hundred miles this week. I'm going to hit 15 miles. And, and sometimes the most difficult decision is one is to take time off when you're that driven. Mm-hmm. So if they were able to think, you know what, we're both sick. We have the flu. We can't run Houston. That, that takes maturity, but you know, you, you want to, what is the right decision? I say sometimes it's the most difficult decision and that doesn't necessarily mean it's running. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean the first, the first, I mean, Scott Smith couldn't run at all the first day. And then I said, why don't you try four miles? And then he texted me after his run. He said, I can only make it two. But that's so that's so great, right? Because so many runners would have just just grinded through four. And he was like, yeah, I'm not, I can't do it, you know? And so that shows a lot of confidence. And that's um, something to be admired, I think. Yeah, like I forgot about – I'm glad Robert's selling me out here. Forgot about the senior year of cross country. But when I was thinking about Olympic trials for myself, if I got the flu six weeks out, that would have been it for me. I think a lot of runners, they need to realize like you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to miss some time. You're fit. You just got to go with what you've done. There's no bonus points for doing a workout in February 20th and that sort of thing. And and back to the women real quickly. So they're, they're all on the same page. They're training together. sounds like everything, which is great, but they're still individuals. And one, I'm kind of curious about strengths and weaknesses, but how did you decide for Alvin to go to Houston and race it more and um, Stephanie and Kellen to, to stay in Phoenix and do more training with the harder part at the end? Like what was the reasoning behind that? Well, Alphine is, uh, you know, in her, in her, uh, not, I don't know, to say past life, but, but before she joined the team, she raced a lot, you know, she really raced a lot. I mean, part of that is because when she first came out of college, she didn't have a sponsor. So she had to race a lot. Prize money was her only source of income. So she got used to uh, racing quite often. And we've kind of pulled back on a little bit of that, but um, I don't want to, I want the athlete to feel comfortable and it would be, it, I don't think it would have been comfortable for her not to have an all out race during the whole segment. Plus she didn't get to race at all over the summer uh, or in the fall, except for the New York city marathon. Cause she had been hurt uh, early in the summer. So she was just, she was just lacking overall races uh, for the year. And uh, so that's why she got to do it. And then Kellen and Steph, I think, were much more uh, keen to stay home, uh, stay close to family, uh, do it as a, as a glorified workout and get right back down to business. So it was just it kind of worked out where 
it was just personal preference, but it also sort of aligned with what I thought was best for each of them anyway. We know that the three women are healthy, training well, pretty well. They just all put up a pretty credible result. In, in terms of the men, uh, Scott Smith ran the PR in Chicago, ran 211. That's the good news. The bad news is he was only the sixth American in the race because, <laughs> you know, there hadn't been six American under 212 in the same race in probably a long, long time. And But uh, he's still 10th ranked in, in the trials. But we haven't seen Scott Fobble. He had the 209.09 in Boston. I think he's only raced twice since then. I think he was 11th in the U.S. 10-miler. When was that? October? Beginning of October. And then I think he ran Beach to Beacon, was like six or something like that. So nothing really impressive from him since the trials. You, you say that the training is going well, except for this illness. What's he been up to? How's he doing? I've got his Q&A here. He sounds like it's going really well. And I must admit, Ben, I have not been to NAZElite.com, folks. Unlike most groups, Ben, and, the, and this is what Hoka Elite is known for, they share all their workouts. You can find their online training log. So go to the website, NAZElite.com, and do that and find that. But, Ben, I took your advice from the last podcast. Sometimes there's too much information now for running nerds. I did not have time to actually see their training. But tell me what the plan was initially after Boston. You purposely didn't run a full marathon with him. And then, you know, those were his 11th at USA 10 mile is not really that good for someone of his caliber. Terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it wasn't him. I mean, the thing is. Good thing we didn't run the fall marathon because after Boston, he was dinged up, basically. Uh, he, his, his hamstring and back were messed up. You know, Boston's hard. It's hard to train for and it's hard on the body. And when you run as fast as he did, uh, you know, it, 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 it's 50-50. Sometimes you come out of it okay, like Jared did, but sometimes you come out of it a little banged up. And it was a weird injury because he could run, but his form was off, you know, and you could see it. And I was trying to tell him that. And, it was hard to articulate because I couldn't put my finger on it, but he just didn't look right. Uh, and he was really struggling up hills. He wasn't popping off the ground like he was before Boston. And so we were trying all these things, and he's so darn tough. Like at Beach to Beacon, he finished sixth. He was top American, beat Chris Derrick, beat, beat Bumbleo, but he was really not on his game. And um, I think he got exposed later on as the races got longer. I mean, he dropped out of the 20K because his back hurt. And then the 10 mile 11th, I mean, he's never been lower than, I don't know. He's, I don't think he's ever been on a road race championship. He's usually in the top three. So yeah, that was kind of the final straw that, that 10 mile. Cause it was like, okay, now it's so clear that you're not yourself. We, we got to get this fixed. So he took three weeks off and he saw a specialist on um, biomechanics in Portland. And this guy was amazing. He, he gave us a 30 minute analysis on tape we saw scott running on the treadmill we saw all the little data points we saw the you know he uh he had the alignment on his back and he showed us how he was leaning too far one way and then too far the other way too much rotation um and so we took that to our physios here in flag and he's been able to work specifically then on those issues he was having and i'm telling you everything's fine everything's totally fine the workouts he's done to this point or I guess before the flu, I would say he was in a better spot six and a half weeks out from the trials than he was six and a half weeks out from Boston. There's no races to tangibly show you that, but uh, yeah, he was crushing. So it's all it's all good with Scott Fall. One question I have about the training is you said the women are doing the same workouts, and I assume the, the three men are doing the, you know basically the same workouts as well, but are the men's workouts and the women's workouts the same? Yeah, they're the same. Uh, the only person that's doing less is Sid Vaughn. Uh, at the top of the show, you said it was his debut. He actually ran CIM before he joined the team, but it didn't go very well. Um, but but anyway, uh, Sid's not as experienced as the other five. So uh, he's had a couple sessions that are different. But, yeah, the men and women do the same workouts. Uh, Kellen probably gets the most mileage of anybody, men or women. Uh, but the workout volume and the, and the structure of the workouts is exactly the same. So speaking of the volume, I've been reading these Q&As that are coming in. And, by the way, can – I want to give your give your teammates next team meeting. Tell them they've done a very good job of responding to our questions. Oh, good! Not, That's good to hear. Not all of these people have responded to the email responses. But we've gotten. I know Alephine, um, Kellen, Stephanie, and Scott. So I think at least four f f from your group. But one thing that struck me one of the questions was how much are your you know how's the training well? And, and, and Scott said so far the training has gone well. The only thing we've changed a little bit is that we've pushed the mileage up and condensed the segments. So we had a little six-week block. We had a ton of huge workouts back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. So my legs haven't felt as poppy as during other segments 
and the splits haven't been quite as fast, but I think the work as a whole is better than any other segment I've had. So seems very encouraged by that. But one question, one thing I noticed was when we said, how much mileage are you doing? Sid Vaughn, I think is what, he's 26. He's pretty young. He said he was right around, I think about a hundred miles a week. I think that's where Fable was as well. But the women seem to be higher. I mean, Tulemic said she's up at 120. And you just said Taylor's higher than that. Is that right? So explain sort of, is, is this a philosophy that the women should run more than men because they're women or just because they're better at handling mileage? Explain that to, to everybody. I mean, each athlete is just their own individual athlete. You know, Kellen responds really well to high mileage. Fobbs, um, he he tends to get real grumpy if, if it gets too high, you know. So he, he likes to feel a little poppier on the big sessions. Scott Smith seems to respond really well to the high mileage. Scott, Scott Smith and Kellen probably respond best to the high, really high mileage. Uh, Fauble and Steph, I think, are a little lower. They, they, they tend to respond well to feeling a little less heavy on the big workouts, a little poppier. Um, Alephine, I think, could probably handle just as much as Kellen, but I've just given her a couple miles less here and there because she did have an injury last year, so just trying to be careful. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Once you get to the pro level and you're talking about the marathon, I don't think I don't, I don't see why women would run less. You know, obviously, I believe some can run more. It just depends on the individual. I, I don't think women have a higher rate of injury from high mileage. Uh, I don't think mileage is all uh, is ever the cause of injury. Well, I mean, it can be depending on how you're doing it, but I think I think easy mileage is easier on the body than hard intervals on the track. So, um, you know, we're just running nice, easy miles on the dirt roads of Flagstaff if we're not doing a workout. So uh, it's pretty safe. Yeah. One of the things I know Weldon used to tell everyone when he was in college running in the streets of New Haven, he iced his knee every day for four years. Then when he moved to Flagstaff and was running on the soft surfaces, he no longer needed to ice his knee. So so how much does Kellen run? I mean, what are we talking here? Just one. She runs 120. But you know how, you know how athletes are. If they run one 120 mile week, they say they've been running 120 mile weeks. Yes. I think Kellen yeah. really has been running 120 mile weeks, but most of them have been under that. I don't think we go crazy on the mileage, really. We're we're really big on the uh, the volume of the sessions, the big the big workouts. Yeah, and since you guys share all your workouts, your team can't they can't lie about their workouts like everybody else. Yeah, exactly. There's the whole mental game though, you know, like boxers and stuff. Was there ever? I'm sure you guys had this discussion about keeping stuff private but i know a lot of kids and other people training they love seeing the workouts is is that why you guys do it just like hey it's an open book maybe you can learn from this i mean i don't think a lot of people are going to learn from trying to copy the workouts but if they can take nuggets of wisdom i think there is stuff to learn there yeah 100% it's for the fans and it's for our marketability i mean it's a business it has nothing to do with our competitors i i would be shocked if our competitors were we're reading those. I mean, they're not going to change their workouts. They believe in what they do just like we believe in what we do. So it's really for the fans. Uh, and I do think we take some confidence from putting it out there because it's kind of like, Hey, here's what we do. What you think of it isn't going to change our fitness level. And, uh, we don't think we've ever gotten beaten because we put our workouts out there. If you're fitter than us and you beat us, uh, so be it. But, uh, I don't think we're at any sort of disadvantage for putting it out there. Speaking of marketability, like you guys are a fairly new group. I feel like you've caught on very quickly and had a lot of success, but you're like the young guys on the block, or maybe not that young anymore, but the outside world judges everything on the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. So do you feel extra pressure this year? Does the team feel extra pressure? You know, you got to put someone on Tokyo, or is that that's, you guys embrace that? Can anyone approach the Olympic trials like another race? Or maybe you don't want to approach it like another race, but sort of... Talk about some of the beauty and pressure of the Olympic trials. Yeah, that's well, that's a very good thing. Yeah, because one thing on the other podcast that really struck me when I was re-listening to it this week was you said that when you started the, the team, what, in 2014, you used to have really concrete goals, like we're going to make this team, we're going to run this time. And one thing that really struck me about that podcast is you're like, we don't really do that anymore. We just want to get better. So that's the goal, get better. You said you didn't even mention the word 209 to, to uh, Fable before Boston. He almost ran 208. But now, obviously, it's hard not to think about top three, make the Olympic team. And actually, one of the Q&As for the team, what, for, your, for these uh, qualifiers is, 
what is your goal for the trials? And Ben, I don't know if, if your athletes have told you this or not, but I was shocked when Fobbles was the first one I read. It just says when. <laughs> and then I'm like, I even read uh, Sid Vaughn, Sid Vaughn, right? Um, he's like, make top three, win, make top three, make the Olympics, tool men. I'm like, oh, maybe it's just a male thing. You know, they're very – maybe men are naturally slightly a bit more competitive than women. Maybe not, but women, same thing. Tool them, make the team, make my, make my family proud. <laughs> so they definitely are focused on making that team. But how have you stuck to your mantra of – Well, I mean – yeah, I mean that would be getting better, you know. I mean, we were we were fourth twice uh, last time at the trials on the on the track, and sixth twice in the marathon. So I don't know what else our goal would be besides uh, making the team. And uh, as I've told the athletes, um, you know, if you really study the trials, the marathon, but also you know, pick an event: five thousand steeple, ten thousand, fifteen hundred, whatever. Um, watch those races. The people who try to win end up on the podium. The people who try to get third end up fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, etc. Um, so of course Fobbs should try to win. Uh, of course Alphine should try to win. Uh, you you try to win, maybe you win, maybe you end up second, maybe you end up third. But uh, I think if you go in with an attitude that, oh, I'm going to try to sneak onto the team, I'm going to try to do some cute thing where you know I start out in 12th and I slowly move up, and then, those are fantasies. That's not what really happens. It's like NCAA cross-country. There's no secret to NCAA cross country. You get out and hammer. You put all your five guys up as high as you possibly can, or your five ladies, and um, and uh, you compete up front. And that's how you make uh, the podium in NCAA's, and that's how you'll make the podium in Atlanta. You'll you'll go for the win. You know, um, I mean, why wouldn't Fall think he can win? I mean, he's he was just he's just running stride for stride with the best guys in the world at Boston for 22 miles and giving them all they could handle. So. Um, I'm glad that they're saying that. Yeah, I think exactly. Um, I mean, he just seems all in about winning. And then we asked one of the questions was, what would you be doing if you weren't a runner? And he says, it's hard for me to imagine what I'd be doing. I'm all in on this. I've never really had a plan B. Yeah, I don't do the plan B. There's a great uh, podcast I listened to uh, a couple of years back with Bob Bradley, uh, former U.S. men's national team coach. Should have still been the coach. I don't know why they hired Klinsman. But uh, but Bradley was a great coach, and somebody asked him about strategy. And uh, so, you know, they said, so you go into the game with plan A, and then what does plan B look like? He said, what are you talking about plan B? There's plan A. That's it. That's the plan. He's like, if there has to be a plan B, I'll figure that out on the fly. So that's uh, – I like that strategy and that that uh, philosophy. When I read stuff like that, it's like gets me excited for the trials. It's just oh, – It's yeah. going to be awesome. Yeah. So – I was kind of doing the research. I mean, you guys came close last time, but when you look like at the other groups, I mean, you remember as an athlete, you were a 218 marathoner, I think, and you're part of the Hanson Brooks team. They started in 1999. They didn't make an Olympic team until their third trial. So this would be your second trial because you guys started, what, in 2014, right? Yeah. So they think they, they put uh, 2008, they, they had an Olympian. So I guess your plan A is make the team this year. <laughs> <laughs> you'll worry about four years and four years, right? You're not thinking, oh, it's a three cycle thing or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I thought we'd make it last time. I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe that in your in your core, it's not going to happen. You know, I was devastated last time when we didn't make it. You know, uh, internally, you know, I don't care what people thought. You know, I, I couldn't even watch the replay of that race for a year. Uh, I just, you know, I just believed. You know, and and same thing at the track trials when Kellen got fourth. I was shocked that she didn't make the team. You know, I thought she would make the team, but uh, but that's how you have to be. Uh, I, I will say now, with four years removed, or now four years removed, um, I guess you could say it is amazing. I had that level of belief because now Kellen's so much fitter and so much more prepared, and uh, we're so much better uh, and more in, in, in such a better position. But uh, but yeah, my belief is just that much stronger. I suppose now. So looking at the, at, the, at the other women's contenders, I think one of the reasons why Jonathan Galt sort of we, – we give him a hard time for sort of discounting Kellen's chances is, you know, there's just a lot of – not to say that the men's depth in the U.S. isn't good. It is. You know, we had six guys. Or, you know, you're, 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 Scott Smith runs 206 in Chicago, and he's not – 211. 211, and he's only the sixth American there. But, you know, on the women's side – You've got Jordan Hesea, 220.57. Amy Craig, these are PRs, obviously, 221.42. Des Linden, 222.38. Shailene Flanagan is no longer there. Molly, uh, excuse me, Emily Sisson, 
or Miss Sarah Hall, 222.16, Emily Sisson at 223.08. Those five are all several minutes faster than anyone on your team. And then you've got Molly Huddle, who's who's a 226 marathoner, which, you know, you, you've, you, your athletes have done, but she's been third and fourth in New York. So what makes you think like your athletes compete with these women who have run two to four or five minutes faster than your athletes? I mean, first of all, Des's 222 is from 2011. Des's most recent marathon, she'd be coming by six seconds. So I think that's more relevant. Uh, Amy Craig hasn't run a marathon since Tokyo 2018. Jordan Hasse dropped out of her last marathon. So, I mean, just putting on my old journal, journalism cap, because I was a journalism major in college, I mean, I think it's very short-sighted to just list off their PRs. Uh, if I were you, I would take, uh, I would do a like a runner A, runner B comparison and forget about their names for a second and look at Kellen's last three or four marathons versus, let's say, Molly's or let's say Emily's. Well, Emily only has one. Um, I mean, Kellen's last four marathons, she ran 224 solo. She ran 226 in Prague going out in 111. Uh, so she tested herself big time and then ran the rest of the race in no man's land. And then she ran 226.52 in New York, which is the fifth fastest American in New York ever. And she lost to Des by seven seconds. It ran faster splits than her coming home. Des just, you know, made that really risky move, which good for Des, you know. But uh, I mean, look, Kellen should absolutely be right there, top tier. And, and Sarah's run in Berlin was awesome. Absolutely awesome. But Kellen didn't get to run in that race. You know, Berlin was perfect conditions. And I think a lot of people would have run 222, 223 there, including Kellen, including Sarah, uh, including Emily Sisson, probably Molly Huddle would have too. So, you know, the marathon, the times are very neat. They need to be contextualized. Um, and you need to look at a person's history and consistency. And Kellen's consistency is, uh, I would almost say, unparalleled among the favorites. In the marathon. Yeah, you make some very good points there. But I, I think the, the counter argument to that might be, well, with, you know, there's five or six, seven really tier A people in terms of credentials already. The, the odds, you know, you know, I think Jonathan's argument would be, well, the odds of three of them running like a 222 type performance, at least three of them finding that are, you know, well, you would have said really high a couple of years ago. Now there's so many question marks about these women though, are pretty high. Like, so let's say it, Let's say a 223 flat on a perfect course. I know it's not going to be that time because of the hills and everything, but that is what the third person is going to produce. The question is, I think outsiders would say, is can a Kellen Taylor, can a Stephanie Bruce, can a Alephine Tillamac run a 223 flat equivalent type performance? It sounds like you clearly think they can. Yeah, I, yeah, I know I know Kellen could for sure uh, with some of the fitness she's been in. Um, yeah, and Steph and Alephine look really good. But, but I, you know, I would also say that – uh, it is it is one day and you have to be ready on that day and you have to be ready for that course. And we've been very good at, at, at being that. You know, I mean, look, let's take USA 10K, for example, this year. Uh, all the talk was before, oh, it's the Molly and Emily show. Nobody else can compete with these three. Actually, it was Molly, Emily, and Mariel Hall. Nobody else can compete with these three. Their times are so much better than everybody else's. And what was it? It was Molly, Emily, Steph, and Kellen all the way to the finish. If you're if you have a history of being ready on the biggest days, then I think I just don't put it. I don't put much stock in in uh, all these other things. Uh, I, I put stock in our ability to be ready for for the course and the day. And and I, I want to say that that's no knock on everybody else. Of course, of course, those three or those five that you mentioned, they're great and they could uh, absolutely beat us. You know, but um, you know, I'm just not worried about that. If I was worried about that. I, I wouldn't have the level of confidence I do. I just have to worry about us. Well, I think in many ways it's sort of like people didn't realize the fact that Scott was just a few seconds behind Jared Ward last fall because he didn't get to the top American honors. He was four seconds, <laughs> four yeah. seconds back, you know. And yeah. then he beats Jared by a few seconds, runs to an iron, and, hey, Ben Rosario, Hoka, NAC, Elite, look how good they are, and Scott Fobble. Whereas in New York, it's kind of similar to me last year for, for your women as the men. I mean, Kellen Taylor was, what, six seconds behind Des? Yeah. But, again, they don't notice her as much because the, the top American gets so much more publicity than anybody else. And plus, Des is obviously, a, you know, she's made a couple Olympic teams and won a major before. But um, that's got to give you guys confidence. So this isn't going to be a Rotterdam. This isn't going to be a Chicago. This isn't going to be a flat course at all. How – you've seen the course in person. How hilly is it? What would you compare it to? And have you changed the training – specifically to, to address it because it is so hilly? 
Yeah, it's very hilly. It's very hilly. Uh, it's hilly the whole time. Uh, it has more up than Boston. It has more down than Boston. And it's more consistently up and down than Boston. You know, Boston has a, a stretch from, I'd say, like probably four miles to 13 that, or even 14 that really aren't that hilly at all. It's pretty much flat. Uh, same as New York. You've got sections like Brooklyn that are, you know, pretty flat. I mean, slight ups and downs, you know, but uh, this is always pretty significant up or pretty significant down uh, each mile. And then the last four miles all are net uphill. They have downhills uh, mixed in, but net uphill each of the last four. So we've been preparing for that type of race, you know, a lot of pace change, a lot of, um, a lot of confidence in yourself and your ability to handle your internal rhythm and not rely so much on splits. Um, so we've been running courses that are difficult and, that give us feedback that isn't so fun and sexy. You know, um, it's fun to run courses where you know you're going to get um, mile after mile at, you know, for the men 510 or so up at altitude or the women 540 or so up at altitude. But um, to run a course where they're going to have to look down at their watch and see a 525 for the men or a 555 for the women, that's really difficult to handle mentally. Uh, but if you can get used to it and if you can get, if you can kind of wrap your mind around it and be okay with it and then begin to start, start to embrace it as something that you're really good at. Um, then you go to Atlanta and you see a split that's, uh, you know, during the race you, you're on the men's side and you see a five ten, but you can easily say, Oh yeah, but that was uphill. It's no problem. Um, then you're a step ahead of the people who are so in, it's so ingrained in them to, to have constant positive feedback. That's just not going to happen in Atlanta. Yeah, I, I didn't think about the sort of the psychology of <laughs> elite pro is not used to seeing, particularly on the guy's side, you know, five twenties. Well, I, um, you know, that, 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 or you know, five forties or fifties for the women. W one other question. This is kind of random, not really related to what we were just talking about. But in the past, you've sent some of your athletes to Rotterdam, Frankfurt. Not this, you know, it seems like so many groups just go New York, Boston, New York, Boston, New York, Boston. Can you talk or, or Chicago? Obviously, they stick to the American marathons. What has made you branch out of that sort of the three big U.S. races and send somebody to sort of a race that doesn't get a lot of publicity in the United States? I guess there's a couple of big things. One is just, um, you know, look, you're, you're trying to give these people experiences and opportunities to uh, compete on a global stage. And you're trying to uh, I mean, look, I do have their long term in mind. You know, you, at the end of the day, it's very it's it's cool for them to say, uh, I ran at Rotterdam, I ran at Frankfurt, I ran at Berlin. Um, those are awesome experiences. Um, but number two is a, is a the business side of it is that you go, it's, it's the East Africans do the same thing. You know, you go run fast in Rotterdam or Frankfurt, um, and then you can get a bigger appearance fee in Chicago or Boston or New York because you have that faster time next to your name. So uh, it can be sort of calculated in the sense that it's a step in their career that they need to make where they need to put up that fast time so that they can get the uh, appearance fee at the, at the marathon in the States and then prove themselves there. Uh, and, and there's something to be said for the lack of pressure when an American runs in Frankfurt or, or Rotterdam or whatever it might be, because you're not really paid attention to. So you can just go do your thing uh, and experience the marathon and run fast uh, and then come back over here and you're a little bit more prepared for the hubbub that you experience at, at the Boston's and the New York's and the Chicago's. So we're about to be in February. I, I emailed you, I guess, a month or two ago, and I said, you know, are there any key workouts that you do? And, and back then you said that, you know, you obviously planned out the cycle. Obviously things are subject to change. But, you know, as of, what, two months ago, you said you're planning a big workout on February 1st, which would be this Saturday, where you go 10 miles fairly steady and then 10 miles of marathon effort or a little bit faster. And the following week, the plan is 26 miles long run with the first 11 on a super hilly road. And then miles 18, 24 will be marathon effort. And then two weeks out, you'll do uh, 15 miles a marathon effort on Lake Mary Road. All of this obviously is at altitude, it looks like. So it, it, uh, is that still the plan? How, how important are these signature workouts? Like, do, you, do you think that these workouts are critical more for them physiologically or more maybe psychologically? Like do they really gear up for these and think, okay, I got to hit this, hit this one big on Saturday. I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think they're not necessarily harder than what we were doing before, but we'll have a little bit more pop on our legs because we'll pull back a little bit on the midweek workouts. I think you said Fauble had mentioned that the, 
block before this was really condensed, uh, which is the word we use for, you know, the, the block where we really pile one workout on top of another. They're all really big. Um, so you don't feel quite as good. Um, but that's by design. And then now we pull back a little bit. So these workouts, they'll feel a little bit better and they can uh, really crush them and, and feel quite good. So, yeah, I think it's mental and physical. Um, and I think these workouts will feel a little bit more like race day because they will be a little fresher. They won't be as fresh as they will be on race day, but a little fresher than they were when they ran some of these sessions uh, uh, in the in the previous block. Even fresher maybe than they were when they ran those half marathons. So, uh, yeah, they're big, but, but, you know, I mean, a couple of people will probably screw up and not run great on one of them, but that's okay. They'll be okay with that. They know that, uh, one bad workout does not a segment make. So, uh, we'll just try to do the best we can. And do you have any inner team competitions planned? I love this response from, I think it was Fabo again. We asked him his favorite workout or recent, I don't, I don't know if it was recent workout or whatever, but he said, I really enjoyed this one session where we did 12 by 1,258. Then we did a 5K time trial with our whole team, men and women. The women got a 146 head start and we had to chase them down. It was super hard, but we had a big group, good energy, and we beat the women after a week of trash talk. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, sounds like a fantastic yeah. idea for camaraderie. Whose idea was that? Did you come up with that? And, and who, how did you come up with the 146 head start? Yeah, well, when I was on the Hanses team, we did this once or twice. Kevin and Keith, we did a 3,000-meter time trial where the women got a head start. Uh, so that's where I got the idea. And then um, we, did a fi- we did a 5K like this last year before U.S. Cross, uh, and it went pretty well. It was a lot of fun. And then this fall for Kellen, when she was getting ready for New York, I added these workouts where she would do these 5Ks at the end of the workout to try to prepare for the end of the race. And so I thought, well, let's just combine that with the time trial. And then 146 was the difference between Steph Bruce's PR, which is our team record, and Matt Baxter's PR. Uh, He has the fastest 5K PR on the team. So it was just the difference between those two PRs. But now Baxter has just PR'd indoors. Congratulations. Yeah, now he's fat. Now he's thirteen twenty seven. So I guess we'd have to change. Is the that the time first national bit. record? It's the indoor, right? National record. Indoor New Zealand national record. So that was the first uh, national record for the team. Rory kind of came sort of close to the Canadian half marathon record. He ran one hundred one forty four. Rory Linkletter in Houston, and uh, it was one hundred one twenty eight. So he's he's knocking on the door too. Um, so we talked about you know, sort of the other, the other women's competitors. We haven't really talked about the men's race. I mean, Fable's obviously seated number three. You know, maybe we should say he's a co-number three with Jared Ward since they've been finishing so close to each other. Um, but uh, we've got Galen Rupp at 206.07, and then Leonard Carrera sort of made his debut at 207.56. Um, what are your thoughts sort of on, on the field there? It's going to be good. I mean, the field is going to be good, just like on the women's side. I you know, I, I got fired up on the women's side, but again, that was not a that was not me knocking those other women. They're they're super good and super awesome people. And same thing on the men's side; these guys are going to run really fast, and we're just going to or they're going to run really well. I don't know how fast they're going to run, but they're going to run really well, and we're just going to assume that everybody's bringing their A game. Uh, but the the reality is, it's kind of like Brooks Kepka, uh, the golfer. He he talked about last year in the majors. He's like, oh, the majors are the easiest to win because half the half the field you know, overdoes it in preparation. Uh, half the field, you know, is too nervous and they choke. Uh, and then I only have to beat whoever's left and that's not that many people. And I'm not, I'm not saying that about this field. There's a lot of people and I really think they're going to run very well, but it's sort of like you were saying at the top, just being realistic. All three of our people aren't going to make the team, right? You're just being realistic. Well, I'm being realistic about the men's field. All those people are not going to run well, you know? And so it's not, maybe as crazy as it looks on paper, it's ultimately going to come down to a pack of, you know, eight or so guys. I don't know who those eight are going to be. I have no clue. Um, But I do believe our guys will be in there very late. And, uh, you know, I like our chances. It's been interesting in the development for U.S. distance fans. Obviously, Alberto Salazar is no longer coaching Galen Rupp. Um, He has picked Mike Smith, who I, you know, is the NAU coach. He's in Flagstaff like you. I think you and Mike are fairly friendly, right? Have you seen Galen around town? What did you think of, of Mike's decision to coach him? Did that surprise you? And it's sort of, is that something that you would ever consider? Would you coach somebody like that? I guess you couldn't really, cause he's Nike, but what are your thoughts on that? 
It did surprise me. It did surprise me. Uh, Galen is not in town. Uh, Mike's coaching him online. Galen's in Portland. So I don't know if there are plans for Galen to come to Flagstaff or not. Uh, what I did not do was uh, give my opinion publicly or, or to anyone uh, until I spoke to Mike. Uh, so Mike and I spoke uh, last week for about 90 minutes or a couple of weeks ago for about 90 minutes. And we shared a lot of different thoughts. And, uh, you know, Mike is someone I have a ton of respect and admiration for. And I, I like to believe that that admiration is... Um, uh, um, the same on his end uh, about me and uh, we don't necessarily agree about everything uh, but we respect one another and uh, I believe Mike's heart is in the right place with, with uh, that decision I believe he did a lot of soul searching before he decided to take on uh, that project and um, you know he he's He's a great guy. That hasn't changed. He's the same guy before that he that he was before he made that decision. And uh, I believe that uh, Mike's a, a really good person. Great to hear. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really been lost in the modern world is you can respect somebody. We don't have to agree on everything. People can have disagreements. We need to learn how to do have them in a civil manner. <laughs> you know? like, oh my gosh! The Amen. other side is is evil. You know, I mean, you gotta. We need to. You know, there's. All the groups need to respect each other. But um, I guess the other controversial topic, and Jonathan Galt always says that we should make it a drinking game because I don't let a Let's Run podcast go by without me bringing up shoe technology. It's changed drastically in, in recent years, and the vapor flies may or may not be banned. And um, my big argument on this is I think looking back at 2016, I think what happened there was wrong. These shoes were not designed to have give a firmer grip of the road. They made secret shoes. They gave them to a select few athletes, not even all the Nike athletes, and they took Olympic spots from the U.S. and Olympic medals away from people that shouldn't have had it. To me, that was wrong. Going ahead, now that the technology is out there, it doesn't bother me as much. But, you know, you're, you're the coach of the Hoka Oneone NAZ elite team. What do you think about the Vaporfly shoes? Are you worried that the Nike-sponsored athletes will have an advantage, or do you think that the other companies are, are catching up? What is your thought on that? I think that the innovation side of things is great. You know, it's great that everybody's innovating. Uh, I think I told one of you guys in an email that uh, I certainly can't complain about innovation. I mean, we've, <laughs> we're sponsored by the company that's been the most innovative of all over the last decade uh, from an overarching perspective, certainly. Um, I think that my concern, though this may sound uh, cliche or like I'm avoiding it, but my concern has to be our own shoes. You know, my concern has to be working with Hoka to make sure we have the best shoes we can possibly have and that we're not at any sort of disadvantage. And And I can tell you from speaking to Mike McManus, our global sports marketing director, and from speaking to people that are on the innovation team, uh, they're super pumped and, and really confident in what we'll be wearing at the trials and I'm really confident about what we've been wearing. You know, we had carbon plates in our shoes back as early as testing them anyway, as early as 17. And we were racing in them as early as 18. Uh, and we've been racing in them ever since. Now, it doesn't mean every performance we've been wearing those. I mean, Kellen wore the Hoka Tracer for her 224, which is a very basic flat. I think even Hoka would tell you that. But uh, but no, we're confident in the new shoes that we have. Uh, and I, I think... The fact that uh, Nike has made a shoe that uh, is very innovative is, is not a bad thing. Now, I will say this. I can, be, I can be really happy about our shoes and I can be okay with the Nikes and all that stuff. But I can still say I'm not opposed to regulation. You know, I'm a big sports fan overall. And all the sports I follow have regulation when it comes to equipment. You can't give Tiger Woods one of these long drive clubs. He'll be driving the ball 450 yards. It won't, it won't be fun to watch. Um, you can't let, uh, Mike Trout hit with an aluminum bat. Um, you know, and the, and the examples go on and on and the analogies go on and on. Um, so I think if, if there were to be regulations, I wouldn't be inherently opposed to that idea. Now, I think there's a lot of work that has to go into making sure that those regulations are fair and proper and they come from a good place and, 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 uh, you know, that's probably above my pay grade to figure out what those things might be. But 
I'm not inherently opposed to regulation either. So, I, and I think you can be on both sides of the argument. I think you can think, hey, these shoes are these shoes are awesome. They're great. I'm glad. It's so awesome to have all this innovation. But then you can also say, but if things get out, out of control, we, we need to consider regulation. Um, and, and that's kind of where I stand on it. Um, I, I just want things to be fair. And if that means regulation, so be it. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's certainly it's an interesting topic. I mean, it's amazing to me. You talked about, you think over the last decade, Hoka's led, led the way in innovation. And when you said that to me, I was like, that's actually totally true. I mean, I was doing the research. Hoka only started 10 years ago, right? 2009, Hoka right. didn't even exist. I mean, I remember, you know, if you think about it, when I first heard about it, I was like, what's this, you know, the small, like what? And now it was kind of like, how do you say it? Hoka 1-1, Hoka Oni Oni. Now everyone knows what Hoka <laughs> is. Yeah. When I first saw them, they came out right at the height of the middle in this phase, right? And they come out with these huge shoes. And I thought, yep. oh, I want to run in a shoe like that. It'll be like running on with like a cloud. And I, I, I finally, finally confessed, I've got my Hoka Bondi 6s. I'm very happy with them. So, um you know, my <laughs> well, well let, let me just let me just interject and, and say that, uh, you know, it does make me a little bit. Um, I don't know if you would say angry, but uh, I, I find it interesting uh, be, being so involved with the brand now for so many years since 2015. And I'm such a fan of the brand and brand and such a believer in, in Hoka. I just find it interesting that so many people saw those vapor flies and acted as if all those ideas and concepts were brand new. That's exactly Hoka's concept. You know, uh, they took um, they took what they learned from the minimalist phase, if you will, and applied it and, and put it together in a much better format where you had cushioning, you had absorption, uh, you had energy return at a new level. You had stack heights that were different. You had foams that were different. Yeah, they might have looked a little funny, but they were producing better results. Um so all a lot of the things that you see in these new flats, uh, this increased stack height and and um, some of the different foams that are being used. I mean, it, it, I mean to me, it all seems very uh, very Hoka esque. You know, all those things are in the Hoka DNA. And I don't want to go outside of my lane here because I'm not a shoe expert uh, by any means. But I'm just I'm just kind of saying, hey, you know, um, a lot a lot of these innovations that you see are, are uh, innovations that we've been we've had the fortune of. Uh, uh, using for a long time now in, in our regular hocus. One of the things on the Q&A that we emailed out was interesting to me was, I think it seems like a number of your runners run in different, they race in different shoes. One of them was in the carbon rocket. One of them, am, am I right about that? So do you pretty much let them, yeah. you know, figure that out themselves? Like, hey, try the shoe on, try the shoe on. You know, I mean, I think one of the big things, you know, my friend's is a podiatrist and he's like, look, the only thing for injury prevention that's ever been proven is running a shoe that feels comfortable. So do you let them handle that? And, and you know, you've got three different, <laughs> like how many different sh pair racing shoes do you think they'll be in when, when we tow the line on February 29th? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, Hoka doesn't give us any uh, mandate and nor, nor do I. Uh, we, we try everything. And like I said, I mean, Kellen ran 224 in the Tracers, she ran 226 in New York in the Carbon X. Uh, Alphine's run 226 in the Tracers. Steph's run 227 in the Carbon Rocket. Fobbs ran two, 209 in the Carbon Rocket. Scott Smith ran 211 in the Carbon X. So, yeah, we've done all kinds of different things. Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, what do I think will, will happen uh, come the trials? I don't know. We just got the newest version of the Carbon Rocket. Uh, it's not that much different than before. So I think the people who liked the rocket will, well, let me take that back. I don't know yet if it's all that different. It, 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 it is, it is simply a um, iteration, a new iteration of that shoe. So I'm hopeful that it, it rides a lot like the rocket because we we've liked that. And I think the Scott Fobles of the world and the Stephs who have really liked the rocket will like this shoe. Uh, I think the others will have to try it and see if they like it better than the X um, but you know, um, I think that says something about the shoes though. If, if we're, if we're all wearing different ones, they must be doing a good, a good job because, uh, we're producing good, good results in all of them. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty interesting point. You know, it's not like you can go wrong if you've got a lot of good choices. Well, and, and, and like, uh, you know, selfishly bias is bias, of course, but it does make me feel good too, because I know there's a lot of, and it, it would probably stink to be one of these athletes, but I think a lot of athletes, um, you know, their, their performances are being questioned, 
uh, because of the equipment they were wearing. And that, that's unfortunate, but, but it does kind of make me feel good to know that we've, we've produced good results. Yeah, and time. it could make them a little bit nervous if they do get banned. <laughs> they're going to have to find a new shoe in the next uh, True, yeah. I don't know what they're thinking on that. One other right. Hoka athlete who people seem to be obsessed with but is not coached by you is uh, Jim Walmsley, the ultra guy. He lives in Flagstaff. Yeah. He's going to be making his marathon debut at the trials. Do you ever see him around town? Have he? One of the questions was, what advice would you have on the Q&A for all these athletes, which we're going to be posting on Let's Run you know, throughout the month of February, was what advice would you give to a first-time marathoner? And he had the great one-liner. I don't know. I would like to know what they say to me. So have you seen Jim? Have you given That's him funny. any advice? Yeah. Does he ever hop in a workout or two with you guys? Jim is awesome. I'm a huge fan of Jim. Uh, I think he's done an amazing job uh, creating a brand for himself in a very authentic way. And he's an absolute superstar in, in the ultra running world. I mean, he gets mobbed all over the globe when he goes to these ultra running events and He's an incredibly valuable athlete. Um, I'm really happy that he's doing this because it's bringing a lot of new eyeballs to the road marathon world um, via, you know, all these ultra fans that he has. So that's great. Uh, yes, I do see him around town a lot. Uh, he comes to the bagel run a lot on Thursday mornings, and I usually get a little chat in with him there. Um, I was super happy to see him run well in Arizona. I think his training's going really well. I think he's doing it his way. Uh, he has not jumped in on anything with us except one fartlek down in Scottsdale when we were down there for a Hoka Athlete Summit. Uh, other than that, I just hear through the grapevine things that he's doing. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, he's doing it his way. And uh, why wouldn't you? You know, we're doing it our way. So yeah, that's what he should do. Yeah. It's exciting, certainly. I think that the debut makes you know, there's always a question mark, you know. So it's more exciting when someone doesn't have a marathon PR to them, particularly if they're talented, because you think, oh, what, what could they run, you know? So I think he'll, I, this is what I think. I think he'll run much better than some of the uh, naysayers would have you believe, but maybe he won't run quite as well as some of the ultra fans. Uh, would have you believe. I think he'll be somewhere in the middle, but I do think he'll be a factor, and I do think he'll be in the race for a long, long okay. time. Well, Ben, we appreciate it. You've spent close to an hour with us. Sounds like the group is doing well. The three women are healthy, as are the men. The men, you know, a couple of them got sick, but, hey, you'd rather be sick seven weeks out or six weeks, seven, seven, eight weeks out, whatever it was, versus three or four. So <laughs> they time the sickness well. For sure. But I guess what I'll conclude with this. What do you think you'll end up? It's the week of the race, or I assume you're going to have conversations with these athletes. Do you, are you going to have a group setting, or do you do both, or just individual settings, or do you do one or the other? Will you sit down with them as a group individually, and what do you think you'll say to them, sort of for a race plan, or will it vary based on the individual? I think I was just thinking about this today. Actually, I do think we'll do both. I think we'll have a group session. Um, in that session, look, you know, I think I'm just going to tell them that I'm very proud of them, you know, and I'm very proud of all the work they've put in and the belief they've, um, given to the program and to each other. And, and that, uh, you know, look, I love them either, either way, you know, I think it's going to be an awesome day and, uh, I'm just excited, you know, uh, for what they're going to do. So that, that session will be, um, uh, I think more a little bit of a, a chance for us to kind of bond and, and just say, Hey, we, we've, we've done all we can now let's go. This is the fun part. You know, uh, the individual sessions, I think will be a little bit more, uh, about race strategy and tactics because there will be different tactics, you know, They're, they have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think there'll be different parts of the course and different sections of the race that, uh, one person might be, uh, a little bit more suited for, um, than the others. And, and we'll discuss that. And, um, you know, it's not that I'm trying to hide anything from the others, but I think I think there's something to be said for sitting down individually with each person and letting them know what I believe their best chance uh, to make the team is. Do, do you try to tell them, I mean, I know that they can feel a lot of pressure, but in 20 years they're going to look back at this and think, you know what, I had the chance, I, uh, I was competing yeah. for an Olympic spot. Whether you make it or not, how cool is that? It's, it's so cool. I mean, it's so cool. I gave them all a, a, a log, a train, an old school training log, well, it's not super old school. It's Lauren Fleshman's log, but it's the six month one. Uh, and it's just really basic. And I gave them a pen uh, with it. And I said, look, this isn't for, we do so much for the public. We share the journey with everyone and all our fans. But I said, this isn't for the public. This is for you guys. You're going to remember these six months like 
no six months in your life. They're going to be so fun. Trust me. You're going to want to document this. I said, just, just, just take this pen. And after every, every run, just write something down. And it might be 10 miles, um, with Kellen and stuff. It sucked, you know, or whatever. Uh, but just document it and do it for yourself. And, uh, it'll be so fun because I, I agree with you hundred percent, whether or not they make the team, it's going to be a really, uh, amazing portion of their life. Well, good. Good luck to you. And, um, Hopefully somebody makes it. If not, hey, enjoy the journey. And hey, Bob, P.S., if Scott Thanks. makes it, you need to make sure you read his Q&A because it sounds like he's got the celebration debt part down pat. But um, I don't want to know. That's bad mojo. Our, our visitors will be reading it. I'll have Roland track yeah. you down okay. so you can be the play the parent role, make sure he doesn't go overboard. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, Robert. All right. Thank you.